Today, we're making a, a change-up. We have been going through the book of Philippians, and we actually were supposed to end the book of Philippians today. Jeff Warner, uh, our staff guy from Morning Church, was going to preach on the last couple of verses where Paul sends greetings uh, to the Philippians from other Christians around the empire. And uh, given the events of this week, uh, we decided that we needed to do a change-up. Times like this in our city's history have been way too frequent. I remember having to address this kind of a topic when the Columbine shootings happened and a dozen or so kids were killed at their school and then two more committed suicide. It was uh, devastating, to say the least. Devastating. And if you remember, um, just several years later, there was a shooter who went not only to the YWAM base in Arvada and shot people there, but then got in his car and drove down to New Life Church in Colorado Springs and uh, shot people there, and uh, there he was himself taken out by a security guard. There's Virginia Tech, all sorts of those things, not including just terrorist acts that happen on a regular basis around the world. We, it seems, are a totally depraved race. And when times like this happen, I think... It becomes difficult for Christians because we claim to believe in a God, as Evan will remind us, who is all good, all powerful, and all knowing. And so today, uh, Evan and I are going to kind of tag team this sermon tonight, and I'd just like to pray for us now and pray for our city. Heavenly Father, we come to you as people without answers. And we're going to look in your scriptures. Help us to come to some kind of peace about this, Lord. Even if we can't get every single question answered, Lord, help us to learn to trust you because you are who we have found you to be, a good and loving God who has died for us so that we might be set free from sin's curse. Open our spiritual eyes tonight. Open our spiritual ears. Enable us to hear what it is you are saying to your church today. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Evan, come on up. Um, I'm going to start with just a couple readings out of Scripture. Sorry, they're not on the screen. That's my fault. But just listen. Uh, The first one, Psalm 135, verses 1 through 6. 
Starting in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord, praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself. Israel is his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the deeps. Um, Isaiah 46, starting at verse 9. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the beginning, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all. All my purpose. Then in First uh, John one five, we're reminded that God is light, and that in Him there is no darkness. So Scripture is clear that um, you know the Bible is very clear that God is in control and that God is also good. But after you know stuff happened this week, after events, um, any kind of tragedy. Uh, we're reminded that evil is a reality, that evil exists in the world. And it sounds like these where people, um, Christians will say, you know, how, how could God allow this to happen? Um, why did God allow this to happen? And then people oftentimes who aren't of the faith will say things um, like, where's your God now? Where's your God now? Uh, or this is why I don't believe in God, because evil like this happens. And so uh, this issue, as you might know, has kind of historically been called the problem of evil. Um, and it, it's sort of broken down this way. God is all-powerful, and God is all-knowing, right? This is the God of, of the Scriptures. God is also all-good. He loves us, and he desires good for us. And if this is true about God, then evil shouldn't exist, right? Because God would have the power and the knowledge and the desire to stop it. And that's, that's the issue. Um, we all know that evil does exist. This week was a terrible reminder of that. So God's attributes and character kind of can, can seem to be incompatible uh, with the reality of evil. And so we just, we've got to in some way begin to think about this. How do we reconcile this? And so Mike asked that I would just kind of talk philosophically for a little bit and then um you know from the scriptures theologically just how do we how do we reconcile how do we think about deal with the problem of evil um and i just want to say you know first right out of the gate my my hope is not that we would point to logic or that we would point to reason um for our hope that's not what we want to do i uh, i think we're called to think and consider, and so we need to do that. But ultimately, um, my hope is that I point to Christ um, and that we're reminded that Christ is our hope. So uh, I'm going to pray again. This is just very weighty. I'm going to pray again, and we'll, we'll start. Uh, Father God, you're a God of light. There's no darkness in you, and you are in control, and we uh, we are finite. We're small. We don't. No, we don't see the big picture, God, and in this time, we do just pray that you would come, uh, be here, uh, protect me from saying anything detrimental uh, to you or not right. I don't know. Just protect my mouth, God, that I would speak uh, your words of truth, not my own. Um, 
Lord, just be present. Uh, Open our eyes and ears to the truth of your word and remind us of your goodness. We love you. Um, So philosophically, we got to look at things, and I kind of I want to address the person that says, um, you know, this tragedy is proof that God doesn't exist. Um, I've heard that already. Uh, I'm sure you've probably heard something like that. Maybe you have or, or you're going to. Um, the person who says, you know, this is proof that God doesn't exist. And here's kind of the deal. If I'll just spoil the surprise for you. If, if you deny that God exists, then I think you lose your ground to call something evil. Um, and here's why. Evil is, evil is always a corruption of what is good. Um, by calling something evil, you're implying that goodness exists, that there's some kind of standard of goodness. And so evil is always a, a lack of good. It's um, maybe a privation of good, I think is what this is called sometimes. You can think about it this way in terms of hot and cold. Um, cold is not really a property, right? Cold is a lack of heat. If you think about our thermometers, we measure heat. Zero degrees is, I guess, zero heat. I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but that's, it's cold, but it's because there's no heat, right? 100 degrees or 150 degrees, like it was today, is very hot, right? But cold is not a property. Um, another example that's pretty commonly used is light and dark. Um, light is a thing. We can measure light. It has wavelengths and some kind of particle stuff, again, that I don't understand. But light can be measured. Darkness is not a thing. You can't measure darkness. Darkness is simply an absence of light. So in the same way, evil, um, if you want to get nerdy about it, you'd say has no ontology. Evil isn't, isn't a thing in and of itself. It's a lack of good. And so, again, when you say something's evil, you're uh, implying that there's goodness and that it is lacking uh, in the situation. So if somebody says to me, I don't believe in God because of all the evil in the world, the first thing that I got to say is, where do you get, where do you get the idea of evil? Uh, Where do you get this idea of justice? Right? Because buried in that statement of saying this is evil is this idea that there's some kind of, you know, moral law that applies to everybody, that uh, people ought not go around committing violence against one another, right? But isn't, I mean, that's kind of how the natural world works. This is evolution, right? The strong eat the weak, the powerful oppress the powerless. This is how Humanity has progressed. This is how the animal kingdom has progressed. This is how the world progresses. So if you take God out of the equation, I don't really know what we can complain about. Because if you remove God, you remove the moral law giver. And so the moral law goes away, and I think you lose the ability to call something good and or evil. Um, parenthetical that I forgot to mention in the beginning. We're going to do a short Q&A at the end. So if if I'm just not being clear, then write Joseph down. You can ask and ask me to clarify things. Uh, so again, if, if you remove this idea of God, you say God doesn't exist because evil exists, that falls apart really quick. Um, you've now thrown out the moral law giver, um, this objective goodness who's God, and you you have no room to call anything good or evil. Um, true goodness or evil doesn't exist, just basically you're left with your preferences. 
and some people prefer not to commit violence against others. Some people prefer to commit violence against others. So who's to say, right? Who's right or wrong if we take God out of the equation? And so I think what we're left with is is kind of the idea that um, the problem of evil is really only a problem for those of us who believe in God. Right? It's a mistake to think that if if we abandon belief in God, that the problem is going to be easier to handle. The problem doesn't go away. Evil is still a reality. And, again, I think that's where the problem of evil breaks down. Um, there, There's a quote, uh, Tim Keller, he wrote a book called The Reason for God. It was, like, super bestseller. I don't know, you probably have heard of it. Um, in chapter 2, he deals with evil and uh, and suffering. And he says this, If you're mad at God because he's great enough and he's transcendent enough to stop evil and suffering but hasn't, then you must have a God who is great enough and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that we cannot know. So if you're mad at God because he's great enough and he's transcendent enough to stop evil and suffering but he hasn't, then you must have a God who's great enough and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that we cannot know. So I think as uh, as Christians, this is honestly kind of the best we can do with uh, answering this problem, right? We're left to say uh, that we've got God. God created the world. He created the world as good, uh, and this good world was corrupted by Satan's influence and humanity's choices uh, to turn away from God and try and find life outside of him. But even though... He knew, I mean, you got to think at some point God's sitting there and he's thinking, I'm going to create the world now. And he chose to do it. He chose to create this world knowing everything that was coming. And so even though God knew that evil was going to be a part of the world, part of the world that he created is good, he still chose to create. And I, I just, I don't, you know, we don't know the details as to why why he would allow particular evil events, uh, particular tragic events. We, we've, got, we've got to understand that we've just got a very limited point of view. I preached, you know, maybe six weeks ago in Philippians 4, and we were going through Romans 8.28 briefly, um, you know, the passage that God will work all things together for good, uh, for the good of those who love him. Um, and, and we kind of brought up the point that, you know, if there is this creator God, then us being just human beings who can't even keep their car running effectively, you know, there's no way that we're going to know the big picture at all. We're so limited. We're called in Scripture, you know, that our life is this mist, this puff of smoke. We're here today, gone tomorrow. We're, we're not going to know the big picture. It just doesn't make sense if there really is this creator God, right? No more than uh, a four-year-old is going to understand why they get a spanking when they want to run out into the street, or why they have to get shots that are painful. Um, you know, a little kid's not going to understand everything about life just in the same way we're not going to understand everything, um, being so limited in knowledge. And so I think as, as Christians, we, we affirm that um, God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is supremely good, and that he loves us. But we also recognize that he's the creator, 
Um, he is infinite in his wisdom and his goodness, and we are limited and we are finite. We do not and we cannot know the reason behind every event, any, maybe even any particular evil that takes place. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it says that the secret things belong to the Lord. Uh, in, in Romans 11, 34-ish, talks talks about, you know, says something like how uh, unsearchable are God's judgments, how inscrutable his ways. You know, who can know the mind of the Lord? So, it, you know, in, in a way, it's an unsatisfying answer, right? I can't, I can't tell you why any particular event happens that's evil. Oh, I can't tell you what purpose that it serves. But I think the only answer that we can point to is that God seems to permit evil to happen in a world that he is in control of to make possible some greater good or avoid some greater evil. And this is historically how the problem of evil has been handled uh, in Christian theology. And um, you see examples of this throughout Scripture. Um, I'll just give two quickly. Uh, in the, the last, like, 20 chapters or so of Genesis, you get the story of Joseph, right? Um, the Technicolor Dreamcoat one, not Jesus' dad one. Um, and Joseph, when we meet him, is this kind of arrogant, young, you know, kind of a jerk. I mean, he's like, I don't know, he's kind of a jerk. Just read the story. And his brothers end up selling him into slavery, uh, they plot to kill him. They don't actually go through with it. They sell him into slavery. Uh, Joseph goes through just, you know, he's completely relocated. He's now this slave in Egypt, a prisoner. He's in prison for a, a long time. Um, and at some point, you got to think Joseph's just sitting there in prison going, what, you know, what has happened to my life? This is awful. I am away from everything I know. This is this great evil that's happened to me. Well, um, Joseph, through... Uh, through just influence and his, um, he's got some gifts from the Lord. He uh, gains Pharaoh's uh, favor, and Pharaoh's like the king, right? He's in charge of everything. So Joseph basically basically becomes his right hand man, and Joseph catches wind that there's going to be a famine that's coming, and so he begins storing things up and um, uh, you know just collecting food and preparing for this famine. And so all this evil that happens that relocates Joseph into a foreign place, and uh, he's a prisoner for a while, all this happens. And uh, eventually it turns out that, you know, Joseph is basically in control, and he saves thousands, you know, maybe millions from death by starvation. He saves uh, multiple nations through this famine, including the nation of Israel. And there's this real famous line in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's brothers have come back, and they're apologetic. They feel badly. They're scared also because Joseph is now a real powerful man. And Joseph talks to them, and he says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? That's starting in 19, verse 20. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Um, I think... You know, the supreme example of God using evil to bring about good is uh, the cross of Christ. That we've got this situation where God knows we are sinful and we are lost and we cannot save ourselves. And so he comes, enters into history in the person of Jesus Christ and lives this perfect life. And despite the fact that he restores sight and heals and um, offers life, Men and women conspire against him. 
political reasons, personal reasons, social reasons, uh, and Christ is beaten, um, tortured, and he's put to death. But in this terrible event, God uses, uses this terrible event to bring about the greatest possible good, right? In Christ's death, God made possible the forgiveness of our sins and the future restoration of the entire world. Um, you know, Christianity doesn't give us the why behind all these events. I'm never going to pretend like it does. I'm never going to pretend to know why um, what happened this week happened this week. And I don't think you should probably trust anybody who tells you. But it, I think it does provide us with a framework with which we can approach times like this with hope and not in despair uh, and not even in bitterness. Because even though we don't know the why, we know how things end, right? Uh, we're told that Christ died on the cross and he rose three days later, ascended into heaven, not only to forgive us of our sins, but to make possible and to bring about one day upon his return the entire restoration of the world. I, th I think often in church, you know, we, kind of, we usually stop at the idea of heaven and we say one day we're going to go, you know, away from here to heaven and everything's going to be fine in heaven. It'll be great. That could happen if we die, you know, before Christ's return. But the scripture doesn't ever stop there. The scripture doesn't ever stop with us just leaving and going to heaven. But in the book of Revelation and elsewhere, it's mentioned that there's going to be uh, this, at the end of this age, this new, the new heavens and the new earth. And heaven will literally come down to earth uh, to right every wrong, to cure every sickness, uh, to renew, to make new, to cleanse and perfect a world that is uh, broken by evil. This is what we're told is going to happen. This heaven coming down and because Christ offers us forgiveness of sins and righteousness he can come back and he can destroy sin once and for all without destroying us we're told at the end of, of the scriptures that life as we always wanted it is coming right life without pain life without evil events is coming. We're going to read just this won't really do it justice, but Revelation 21 is a discussion about the new heavens and the the new earth. And it says this in verse 4, he God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is God's promise to us, and this is our hope. Before I begin... My uh, 
my main remarks, I want to address, I, I want to call them our retarded brothers and sisters at Westboro Baptist Church, but maybe that's not PC enough. Our, our compassion-challenged brothers and sisters at Westboro Baptist Church, who are supposed to be here uh, protesting during the memorial service for the victims of the massacre. But I want to read from Luke 13. Uh, this won't be on the overhead. Just listen. The, these are the words of Jesus. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee, and they were sacrificed as they were sacrificing at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than other people from Galilee? He asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you also will perish unless you turn from your evil ways and turn to God. And what about those 18 men who died when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will also perish. So let me just say right off the bat that if Jesus were here, he would say that the people who got shot and injured at the movie theater in Aurora, were no worse sinners than you or I. That we're all sinners. That we're all in danger of judgment unless we turn to God. That's what Jesus would say. So the people from Westboro Baptist are no more holy than the people who were mercilessly gunned down. I want to talk about the unseen world for just a few minutes. The Bible tells us that what we see here is only part of creation. There's a part of creation that we don't see, we don't feel, we don't smell, and we can touch on a regular basis. There's a spiritual world. There are beings who were created before us who have their own salvation and judgment story with God that amazingly we're going to be a part of at the end of the age. The scriptures tells us that we will judge angels. We'll judge them, angels and demons. We'll judge them. And so these kinds of events that we see that have happened too often in our state are not all there is. There's another battle going on behind it. I'm going to start with a passage from John 8. This is Jesus talking. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, 
And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Now these are the words of Jesus. And they give us a clue that there is a spiritual personality known as the devil. And he influences men and women to be like him. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. I think that we can assume from this passage, as well as many others that I'm not going to talk about tonight, that somewhere in the background of massacres like this, the devil plays a part. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5 talks about the devil himself. He says this, he says, Cast all your anxiety on him, Jesus, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. At this point in the world's history, the Christian church was suffering persecution. Christians were being murdered because they believed in Jesus. Just like it's happening today in Africa and in China and in India and other places around the world. It hasn't stopped. If you are paying attention, the weird thing is you know that even Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold were targeting kids they knew were Christians. They had been around them. A great majority of the kids who were killed, well, I'm not going to say a great majority, but a good number of the kids who were killed, they had seen in area youth ministries for the year before. The devil hates the image of Christ in a believer. And here's what's even more terrible. He hates the image of God in every man and every woman. We are formed in his image. It says in Genesis. Merely because we are human, because we are made by the fingers of God himself, we are despised by the devil and by his demons. It's almost as if he takes some kind of pleasure in destroying God's image, not only God's image in people, but God's image anywhere he can find it. God's image as displayed in nature. C.S. Lewis has a character named Professor Weston in two of his three 
or maybe even three of his three uh, space trilogies. But in Paralandra, the middle book, the character of Weston becomes totally possessed by the devil in that story and merely takes pleasure in finding birds and killing them and leaving them on the sand to suffer and die. You ever wonder where the pleasure in maiming comes from? Why people would do that? Let's go to Acts 10. Here the writer is talking about Jesus. And he says, You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. So, among the other things that Jesus came for, one of the reasons he came was to undo the works of the devil. When demons would recognize Jesus, because in the spirit world they saw who he was, they would cry out to him. They almost couldn't help it. What do you want with us, son of David, Jesus the Messiah, son of the Most High God? What do you want with us? Have you come to torture us before our time? And Jesus' answer to them was usually, shut up. And then he would speak with his actions and cast them out into a herd of pigs, just out in the outer darkness. He would take people's lives and remove the devil's influence so they could walk and talk and see. He was about destroying the works of the devil on a regular basis. It was all-out spiritual warfare. This is what Jesus came to do, in part. Obviously, mainly to come and to be a sacrifice and to die for us so that we could finally be reunited with God the way it was supposed to have been from the beginning. To take upon himself the, the sorrow and the suffering of this entire world. The punishment that we deserve for things like what happened at the premiere of the Last of the Dark Knight trilogy. And so we are called to follow Jesus. Our response to tragedy like this is to go and to make things better, to destroy the works of the devil, to undo what he has done, to bring healing where there is injury, to bring hope where there is despair, to bring joy where there is depression. Do you know that the first hospitals on the earth were created by Christians? That's why you have hospitals with names like Mercy Hospital or St. Luke's or St. John's or whatever because Christians felt that they were there to alleviate the suffering of people 
who didn't even know Jesus. Just because they were brothers and sisters in creation. Do you know that the reason that there are schools to combat ignorance is because Christians wanted people to be able to to read the Scriptures. And the first schools were made by, they were theological schools. If you look at a lot of what's being done right now that's being heralded by the press, you know, whether it's water and desert places or sanitation where there is none, you'll find very often Christians behind that to go undo the works of the devil. To bring people out of despair and poverty and hurt. And as we go out to do these kinds of things, we're going to run into problems because we are entering into an unseen battle. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul talks about this. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13 goes like this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, stand. It's a battle. Now, if you go through the armor that he's talking about in Ephesians 6, let me just summarize it. It's Jesus. Helmet of salvation, shield of faith, sword of truth, you know, belt of righteousness. No, yeah, belt of righteousness. Is that right? What's that? Breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth, right. Shoes of peace. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our salvation. This is Jesus. It's just Jesus. And Jesus is all we need. Here's the deal. Even people like James Holmes, who appears to be the shooter in this case, is a man made in the image of God. What happened? People will be asking the why questions for quite some time. But they're not going to talk to you about the stuff that we're talking about here. They'll bring up psychological hurts from his past. They'll bring up all sorts of stuff. But I'm saying that there's an unseen battle going on. There may have been wounds. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I tend to see our spiritual lives in the same way that I see our physical lives. Let me explain. You go through life as a young person. You're learning to walk. You kind of toddle, right? And sometimes you fall down and you scrape your knee or you cut your hand. And if you're not careful, if, 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 if you can't tell, sometimes these unseen germs will get into that cut, right? And it will become infected and inflamed. 
And pretty soon you won't be able to use that hand very much at all. It'll be very, very painful even to touch something. Or you pick up some kind of a uh, bacterial infection just by breathing. And pretty soon your whole body is like out of commission. All you can do is lie down. The infection may become systemic. It may just put you out totally where you're not good for anything else except being sick. I tend to see our spiritual lives in the same way. We have these things called souls. There's really what we are. We're souls with a body more than we are bodies with souls, right? Our real personality is inside. You can't tell what a person's like from looking at the outside. And as you go through life, I mean, you get cuts, you get bruises. Maybe you've got an abusive parent. Maybe you've got an abusive uncle or aunt. Maybe, you know, there's kids at school who make fun of you all the time. Maybe there's a neighbor who takes advantage of you sexually before you're old enough to stop him or her. And these become like wounds to our souls. And if we're not careful, they get infected. And they get infected not with germs, not with bacteria, but with dark spiritual forces. And we need to make good decisions to ask Jesus to come in and clean those wounds out. To confess one to another. To take care of the darkness that is coming inside. We don't make those kind of choices. Maybe the infection can become systemic. And pretty much we're totally controlled by the dark spiritual forces. What possesses a man to put on body armor by many, many rounds of ammunition? Go into a theater and shoot defenseless people. And not only that, but booby trap his apartment because he knows the police are going to go there after he's captured. It's diabolical. I'm saying the soul of that man is infected. And here, I think, I hope this blows you away. In some ways, I wish a man like that had come to scum a year ago. What might we have done in God to clean out the spiritual infection by the grace of Jesus? Why are we here? If not to be a body that tends to itself and takes care of itself, And why are we here as the body of Christ if not to bring that kind of healing and that kind of hope to the world at large? So we're going to spend some time right now praying for the victims and their families, the deceased, the injured. And what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to ask you to break up maybe in groups of three or four around here, and I'm going to direct you in prayer for the next few minutes. I'm going to read off a list of those who are deceased. 
And as, as I do that, I would like you to pray for that person's family, for that person's friends, for their acquaintances at work, for the people who are going to be traumatized and affected by this tragedy. And ask God, because only God, as Evan said, can make anything good come out of something so terrible. So break up, and then I'm going to uh, lead us. Feel free to talk out loud. It doesn't matter if it's a chorus of, uh, of prayer. God can sort it out. All right, please pray with me. I'll give you uh, about um, a minute for each name. Heavenly Father, we pray for Alex Sullivan, who is celebrating his 27th birthday the night of the shooting. Alex Sullivan. Father, we lift up John Larimer, 27-year-old in the U.S. Navy who wanted to be a Navy SEAL. John Larimer. Father, we pray for Jessica Gowie, 24 years old, who recently survived the Toronto mall shooting but lost her life in Aurora. Jessica Gowie.
We pray for Michaela Medic. Michaela Medic, 23 years old. Father, we pray for John Blunk, 26 years old, who was killed while shielding his girlfriend from the bullets. John Blunk. Father, we pray for Alex Teves, who just earned his master's degree but will never be able to use it. Alex Teves. We pray for A.J. Boyk, 18 years old, who just graduated from high school. A.J. Boyk.
We remember Gordon Cowden, 51 years old, father of two, Gordon Cowden. Father, we pray for Matt McQuinn, Matt McQuinn, 27 years old, who also was killed while shielding his girlfriend, Matt McQuinn. Father, we pray for Rebecca Wingo, Rebecca Wingo, 32 years old, who helped her friends plan weddings and recently just presided over a wedding of her friends, Rebecca Wingo. Father, we pray for Jesse Childress, Jesse Childress, 29-year-old staff sergeant at Buckley Air Force Base, Jesse Childress. We remember Veronica Moser Sullivan, 
six years old, whose mother, Ashley Moser, is in critical condition and keeps asking the condition of her daughter. Veronica Moser Sullivan, six years old, and her mother, Ashley. Heavenly Father, we lift up all those who are injured, the 70-some people who are injured, some gravely injured, who are fighting for their lives. Send your healing touch. Give doctors and nurses special gifts of healing. Lord, have mercy on them and the people who are going to care for them. Lord, provide care for every one of them. Use us even, Lord, to care for those who are injured. Lord, as we continue and finish out our worship, let us continue praying to you, asking for your help, your mercy upon our city, your mercy upon the victims and their families and their friends. In Jesus' name, amen.